Sir Alper, the two one to brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a beat reporter, a beat writer for WEEI uh, in Boston. Does work both on air uh, for WEI, which also is the flagship network for the Boston Red Sox, uh, and he also does uh, provides online content frequently, uh, frequently with regard to the the Red Sox minor league system. His name is Alex Spear. Should also be noted that Spear is one of those sorts of beat writers who is entirely sympathetic to inquiry, uh, which also makes him sympathetic to uh, sabermetrics, etc. Spear and I had the following conversation, uh, that is to say, the conversation which follows at the Press Box Cafeteria uh, at Fenway Park. And I uh, I personally would not be exaggerating uh, to say that it was an entirely compelling uh, half hour for me, at least, if not if not for Alex Spear. So uh, let's get to that uh, audio. Uh, it's Fangraphs Audio. It features WEI Radio's Alex Spear, and it begins right now. Question, will you speak only in aphorisms rather than asking questions? Yeah, I'll do that, yeah. I, I, I like to think that everything I say has a bit of pith to it. Okay, good. I mean, that's how you gotta, you got to do things. Make it a Nietzschean reflection on something and something. And that's right. Well, let's, let's talk about that. You are a... Uh, you are a graduate of a, of a school in, in Harvard that... Um, I might be projecting a little bit, but is a school that I'm guessing its priorities pedagogically are aimed at making people like good citizens. My guess is that, so I could tell you, I went to, before they maybe suggested that I shouldn't come back. Right. I was a student at Columbia. It was a gentle suggestion, (laughs) I hope. Which is, um, I think, maybe even more in this direction. The idea is like, and um, was never like, you are training to have a job right now. Right. The idea was we are making you a citizen, essentially. And but your job is one that does have some definite sort of like a definite vocational sort of strain to it, right? Mm. People go, they study communications, right. they study yes. journalism. Sure. And so I'm curious as to how these two things come together in the person of Alex Spear. Well, yeah. Uh, I will not refer to myself in the third person. Okay. Um, <laughs> So I, I wouldn't say to me my you know my educational background was you know was liberal arts humanities uh, history and literature okay. of modern England and Germany right um, totally, which parlays yeah, immediately immediately in- yeah um, so that has no direct bearing on what I do in right. any way shape or form except for the fact that uh, intellectually I was interested in the nature of popular amusements but in a way that has no relevance to the um, way in which I spiel spielerei spiel. Oh well, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I actually the, the actual um, focal area was uh, of, of my interest in popular amusements actually began with the origins of the modern amusement park. Oh, uh, that's and it's like 13th century origins in in England, and that's um, awesome. They there were like oh, there were constant riots related to the breakdowns of Ferris wheels and stuff that you can find. In in fact, uh, there was this great amusement park, uh, Vauxhall, which uh, which remains a kind of famous name in uh, in London. And in British lore, Vauxhall and I, of course, is the uh, this is the Morrissey album. Yeah, too, exactly. Yeah, sure. So right, and Vauxhall being was this uh, was this wonderful. Uh, it was called a pleasure garden 
um, where people would go. They would pay a small sum in order to go there, and uh, at some point it was initially viewed as an amusement of uh, the kind of elite in Britain because everything is an amusement of the elite and there yeah. were no popular amusements. And then they lowered the price, and then within 50 years they had uh, they had gotten rid of the thing altogether because it had become... Uh, Run over become by the vulgar... It, a little bit too popular, <laughs> as, as luck would have it. Um, no, and then it they pursued rational recreation, where they created public parks that were meant to be generous uh, and beneficent to the poor, uh, but also to assert a form of social control over their leisure. Uh-huh. And then, now, the sort of people allowed, where, where were the muscular Christians? Were they, were, <laughs> were they allowed in, or were they not allowed in yet? Uh, well, in fact, uh, in fact, muscular Christianity, I suppose, <laughs> had a great deal to do with the regulation of popular amusements uh, at, in various guises throughout Brit- throughout British history from probably the 17th century on. Uh, in that, for instance, the uh, for instance, plays became a very controversial thing as to whether or not they should have them. I mean, whether or not there should be such a thing as theater, or if this, like, act of treachery and deceit was so morally revolting that they should ban them altogether. And so you had to have, like, you had to have theater that was occurring underground, largely. Uh, And that also spread to popular amusements. The regulations did have various religious connotations, but then it also had kind of a socio-political bent to it. Now, uh, and and one other thing is you mentioned pleasure gardens. Hmm. Would, Would one find a pleasure garden anywhere near a pleasure dome. <laughs> and, and where would Kuba Khan be in the entire... Well, I don't know. I suppose that, that would have to be resolved by a Calvino or something, right? But okay. uh, <laughs> we could have a, you know, an, an imagined pleasure dome that was this, the, the, with a pleasure garden residing inside, and then, you know, and then everything would be reduced just down to a conversation between Marco, Marco Polo and the great Kuba Khan. But, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, look, I look forward to it. There you go. I look forward to it. Um, but uh, getting back to the broader question, uh, I, I'm not sure if, if the education was so much uh, towards citizenship as it was towards, uh, to me, the fundamental nature of a liberal arts humanities education, its critical purpose uh, is to teach people how to be um, how to be inquisitive. Yeah. And whether or not that relates, how that relates to citizenship, I'm not sure, because we aren't sure what we're citizens of. There's the constantly shifting boundary, Nate, what is nation, what is, you know, uh, what, are you a citizen of a country, are you a citizen of a world, are you a citizen right, of a smaller right. imagined community, you know, in the Benedict Anderson terms. And so, to me, you know, the liberal arts upbringing was great for what I do now, because it just kind of taught you, okay, there are various critical fa- critical modes, ways that you evaluate things critically, you know, uh, when you're breaking, when you're looking at, when you're deconstructing literature, are you, you know, are you doing so, is it a postmodern perspective, is it a Marxist perspective, is it a blah, is it a blah, is it a blah, uh, and the thing that you learn is, oh, crap, there are just a lot of different ways that you can, you you can choose the way in which you're going to, the the prism through which you're going to examine anything right and then you can choose a different side of that prism and see it entirely differently and you can just keep looking for different dimensions so uh that was the non-vocational way in which my education had a great deal of influence over what i do now but at that time i had no real sense that i had anything that was going to look like this trajectory right so so i i'm glad we've established this because i think we're going to return to some of the ideas we just we just laid down here um Another thing I want to establish, though, is, and it starts with uh, invoking the fact that I recently spoke with Derek Gould, uh-huh. uh, who I think is he appears to be universally beloved. 
Um, uh, yes, although I, I have very little personal familiarity with Derek by okay. virtue of the fact that he's in the St. Louis market, and right. you know, and we've overlapped pretty much not at all. Okay, right. But so, so uh, it seems as though there seems to be a general sense that he does his job very well. Yes. Now he's writing for. Uh, the St. Louis Post Dispatch, and we but we talked about ways in which being a beat reporter for a, a, a daily in a city has changed in the last ten or maybe even five years, right? And a lot of that has to do with social media. Mm-hmm. Um, your your job is what I'm assuming that did not exist in its current state ten years ago. If, if my what, company <laughs> did not exist, my company qua company did not exist. I mean, WEI existed. WEI.com in its current iteration as a news, uh, as a news gathering, right? And you know, it, and as a as an, a form of electronic media that featured the written word did not exist. Right. So that's yeah. the strange thing, right? right? Because you work, you are employed by a radio station, but that radio station also has uh, an entire site that's based on comment uh, right. commentary in written form. And so now, what is your uh, like on a, on a daily basis? What are your sort of responsibilities? If you like, I've certainly seen you provide content. I've also heard you on the radio. Mm-hmm. What is it? How do you work that then? Uh, my so I will regularly uh, I will regularly contribute to the uh, to the radio pregame show of the Red Sox. I work for WEI, which broadcasts mm-hmm. uh, which does play by play broadcasts of all of the Red Sox games. So um, I'm typically a participant in the pregame show at the at the least. Uh, I will sometimes be a uh, be a call in guest or an in studio guest of various shows. I myself have a weekly radio show dedicated solely to coverage of the Red Sox minor league system. That's awesome. It is. Yeah. I, I enjoy it a lot. I imagine mo- a, mostly Mookie Betts is what uh, you're talking about. I mean, I it, it could be if I <laughs> wanted it to be. It could be Mookie Betts every week. Yeah, uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Mookie Betts this year. It's been a very interesting. <laughs> and he, uh, I mean, the hits keep nature. coming. So everything keeps coming. He's, 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 he's become a, this like this curiously dynamic force of nature, yeah. and I don't know what to do with someone who was, uh, you know, prospect rankings are interesting not because they necessarily tell us anything in static form. Mookie Betts was the number thirty-one overall prospect in the Red Sox system. I don't care. Yeah. What I'm interested in is seeing like dynamic. You know, is, is seeing dynamic movement, right? And okay, so you have a snapshot of a guy who's number thirty-one, and, and even that was. A, a picture of a guy who, in Lowell last year, basically never had an extra base hit, uh, but he walked more than he struck out. Yes, he did. And he was a good fielder, and he was fast. And so you thought, and there's some interesting and efficient components on, base, on the bases. Yeah, very yeah. efficient. Yeah. Right. So efficient in these two interesting aspects: base running and in terms of walks versus strikeouts. And so he he was interesting, but no more than that. And then he actually became. I was I was perhaps. My obsession with him began early this season yeah. when he was batting about 150, and yet he had an on-base percentage that was pushing 400 yeah. because he was walking twice as often yeah. as he was striking out. And I was trying to find context for what on earth does that mean for someone. And so it, I was looking over spans of years to fi- try to find minor leaguers who had ever done this, and really there weren't a great deal of them who had... For instance, on-base percentages, uh, actually in the, at the major league level, that were two times what their batting averages were. And so then it began to be this like fascination of the uniqueness of Mookie Betts. Um, I hope I didn't misuse uniqueness. Yeah, no, did. I'm not using. I am misusing uni- uniqueness because I'm then saying like I was looking for 
goddamn comps for a guy uh, whose uniqueness I was exploring. So that was a terrible <laughs> choice of words. Yeah. Anyway, Ex- uh, he's uh, on the extremes of he's, the uh, uh, DSP, uh, the distinctiveness of Mookie yeah. Betts, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so there's this. So there were these very strange things that he was doing, and then all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, he kept doing these strange things, such as walking a ton and not striking out and running the bases very efficiently. And he also decided that he was going to start hitting home runs like he wanted to be the next Xander freaking Bogarts or something. Not quite to that extreme, but he's a 20-year-old who's 5'9", who's, five nine or who's, whatever, five nine, who's, or whatever, to, who's yeah. now up to 15 home runs in Greenville, which is a good hitter's park, in Salem, which is a terrible one. And, you know, I talked to people who were his hitting coaches last year, and they said, look, he did a great job of scoring the ball. I did not see this coming. Like, he's he's a shock. Right. And so it's the dyna- – you know, he is he is a case study in dynamic development. It becomes very interesting. So anyway, yeah, I have a radio show on a weekly basis about the Red Sox minor league system. <laughs> well, and, with regards to Betts, yeah. though, another thing is to and, – and uh, I'm, I'm mentioning this anecdotally, and I think it's been borne out uh, perhaps uh, empirically as well, but is that – Batters who control the strike zone, yeah. batters who get themselves into good counts, which I'm assuming Betts does if there's you know walk and strikeout races or any indication, right. they're going to see better pitches to hit. So whether he's quote unquote uh, earn your fastballs, right? Uh, exactly. As it yeah. were, which whether is he's something t- I was talking about a lot with Xander Bogarts. Uh, oh, and has he earned his fastballs? Uh, he did. He did. That's why you saw kind of the explosion in uh, in Portland towards the end of his time there. Um, he he earned his. He did a great job of spitting on breaking balls that were just outside of the zone, right. and either making pitchers work in the strike zone with their breaking balls. And initially this year, he was hitting for average and posting really good on base percentages and surprisingly little power in Portland. Right. And then all of a sudden, June came, and then whoosh. Okay, I want to ask you more questions about we. Okay, uh, for the first one is, um, who do you call when your windshield's busted? <laughs> call giant glass. Call giant glass. That's exactly Indeed. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the there's, a, there's something very powerful and subliminal about audio. Uh, yes. Yes. Well, from the things I've learned from, because I've listened since I was a child, is that uh, you call one eight hundred fifty four giant. giant. Uh, and the other one is I've learned that that'll joke, be someone's like that'll be someone's dying words. By the way, it, call one eight hundred fifty four giant. Like, it's going to be on, on some epitaphs. I also know that, because, uh, again, I've listened since I was a child, Joe Castiglione loves Shaw's. Yes. You never find anyone more dedicated to Shaw's than Joe Castiglione. And as we should be. It's the next, I mean, now, you know, I, I grant you that, uh, that you know, their takeover of, of the star market was, you know, was difficult for some to reconcile, particularly yeah. those who appreciated the fact that Julia Childs had, had you know, had gone to the star market in Porter Square yeah. for decades. Yeah. But we'll get over well, we must, uh, we must arrive. But in terms of so your daily duties, though, like for today, uh, well, right now you're sitting down with me, but you have been working today. And so, like, what's the thing you're, you're working today on today? Today was actually an, an atypical day. So my, I'll give you my typical day, and then I'll describe today. Let's do it. Typical day. Uh, wake up around, uh, wake up typically around 6 in the morning, finish writing whatever I was working on uh, when I passed out on the keyboard the previous evening. Okay. Uh, 7.30, uh, take a break in order to make lunch for my son and take my son to his, my three-year-old son to his daycare and my wife to her work. Uh, get back home by about 9 o'clock. Re- uh, resume. Well, I've probably concluded, hopefully I've concluded whatever I was writing on the previous night. At that point, I begin writing about the Red Sox minor league system, which I do for the next two to three hours uh, on a daily basis. Awesome. Um, and then following that, uh, I hopefully at some point I'm going to eat and or, uh, and or observe various hygienic practices, uh, <laughs> at which point I will then begin writing Do you ever about perform what? ablutions? Morning ablutions? A morning ablution. I, I, why, why limit it to the morning? <laughs> um, and... 
so yes, and so you know, and so but then you know, really, uh, it's work, work, work uh, until I leave. If it's a home game, until I leave for the park. Uh, which I'll leave around 2.30 to get to the park by 3 to 3.15 so that I'm ready to go down to the clubhouse. Uh, and then basically I will continue to write um, on those home games until I pass out on my keyboard and then cycle resumes. Today was slightly atypical in that I had, oh, and I have uh, radio obligations for the pregame radio show that typically take place around 6.30. Today was slightly atypical in that I had the normal start to the day. However, I was helping to co-host a uh, radio show today uh, from 10 to noon, um, and there were other various life responsibilities uh, between. So between 10 a.m. and showing up at the park today uh, was slightly atypical. But. Okay, right. And so when you're doing those, um, this was a EEI yes. uh, radio program. Which, mm-hmm. which one are we doing? Uh, this is uh, typically the Mutton, the Mutton Merloni show yeah. at, uh, from 10 to 2. However, today I was co-hosting with Tom Karen because both Mutt and Merloni were observing Labor Day as one often does by uh, by in the absence with the absence of labor. Uh, right. Yes, right. that's what yeah. you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I believe the original lab- Labor Day is not actually really even supposed to be September, is it? It's, oh, God, uh, no. No, May- it was a really, yeah, uh, this was a very very intentional strategy on the part of the U.S. government in yeah. order to make all celebrations of things related to uh, to national holidays related to the worker look nothing like anything that smacked of communism. <laughs> and so, you know, so we do not observe May Day. Right. It was Hay- Hay- it was the Haymarket incident, wasn't it, in Chicago? Isn't that what May Day is, is named after? Or is it even... Oh, I, I think that May Day, uh, I, I thought that May Day, you know, May Day pre- antedated that, you know, oh. by a considerable degree in other countries. Oh, okay. I mean, right. it's a, it remains in full force uh, in, uh, in in other in Europe, for instance, right. uh, it's a it's a very important day, yeah. and of course the rights of workers um, and uh, the, the rights of workers in Europe tend to exceed those in the U.S. Uh, as a as a employee of EI, do you get Guy Fox Day off, <laughs> <laughs> or is that also? A- uh, we, we do not. We do not celebrate <laughs> Guy Fox Day. However, uh, I, I feel like we should all dress up as Bobbies. Yeah, that, so. um, I, I will actually say this too. I, I had the opportunity to listen to uh, Mutt Merloni uh, um, driving around yesterday, and uh, I'm, I'm big. I really like Lou Merloni's presence on the radio. It was strong, and, and we get into this too a little bit. Is um, coaxing. Uh, coaxing words out of players. Uh, Lou Merloni's not a guy from whom you need to do that. He seems uh, to uh, to be actually rather measured in most of his speech. Yeah. And also ha- is from is from the town. Absolutely. So he has an accent that endears him to the region as well. Uh, I, I think that Lou's terrific. Actually, I remember thinking, I want to say it was around 2005 when he came back. Uh, he was no longer with the Red Sox. He was back with the Indians. Um, and just talking with him at various junctures at that point in that season... 2005, 2006, uh, because I, I talked to him also about, uh, about, for instance, Coco Crisp after uh, after that deal had gone down, and thinking, oh yeah, he's this is someone who's going to be a very important part of the local media landscape for a number of years to come once he decides that his playing career is done, assuming that he decides that he doesn't want to become a coach, right? Uh, which was an avenue that he also could have pursued, but uh, he felt a comfort level, not just talking about the Red Sox, but about other sports as well, much to his credit. Right. Otherwise, it would be difficult for him to uh, to be a year-round radio host. And right. so, uh, and so I, I agree, he's... Uh, He's pretty. He's pretty passionate about following sports locally, yeah. and so I think that that comes across pretty clearly, which it has to if you're going to be on the radio and talking for four hours every day. Now, in terms of making those, those presence uh, radio appearances, um, and you mentioned Lou Maloney, uh, it was, uh, 
easy for him to endear himself to the listener, right? Um, because he's got the accent, but he's from here. You know, he was uh, he was a member of some some those sort of like first exciting again teams in the late nineties. I'm curious what it's been like for you. In he was actually also part of the 2003 Red Sox, by the way, uh, and he should have been starting over Damian Jackson. And had he done so, Johnny Damon never would have been concussed. But that's another story. Oh, that's oh, they all ran into each other. Somewhere? Yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the worst head-to-head collisions. The probably the worst save for Beltran and Cameron that I've ever seen in a base, on a baseball field. Um, you, uh, you're not from here. Um, I mean, you're you're perfectly pleasant gentleman. I can say this from my interactions with you. I'm, I'm, there are plenty who disagree with yeah, you. Yeah, sure. So. There's that. So I'm curious about because you, you are curious, and um, you would I, all, I, that's subject to interpretation. You val- you recognize that curiosity is a virtue. Okay. Is that a possible? I think so. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing is, I hope to cultivate it in my three-year-old son. And you also, you, you have, it seems, a, a thirst for ideas. You're excited about ideas. Even just, we were talking here about uh, the history of the amusement park, right? Yeah. I'm curious to what degree you're able to, in within the confines of EEI, which is uh, um, appealing to a market, uh, in which contains a lot of different types of fans. Some guys will call them and just be like, I think we should trade, you know, uh, Felix Dubrant for Miguel Cabrera or something like this. Um, I'm curious to, to how you are able to do that in a way where you're both satisfying the, the demands of the market, which are varied, and then also um, the sort of your own personal demands, right? I mean, you want to get paid by EI, but you also want to be operating in a way where you can feel as though you're operating at the top of your own intelligence. Uh, that's... Well, I, I think I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm talking about myself. I think that that's something that every beat reporter, every reporter probably struggles with because um, this is probably something that Derek Gould got into, I'm guessing. Uh, but the demands of covering a team are now uh, in They are now in many ways antithetical to the exploration of meaningful ideas. Not in the sense that, it, that that you are prevented from doing so, but in the sense that you have so many responsibilities that you have to get to on a minute-to-minute basis uh, that it becomes very difficult to find the time. There's a lot of wit. Dig in, there's a lot of uh, wit as opposed to you know, depth. Twitter and, right, there's the, there's the news of the day and the things that we treat as significant now are very different from what we treated as significant before, but, you know, if, if someone is reporting, maybe it's you and maybe it's not, that, you know, that X player has been outrighted off of Pawtucket's roster, but he cleared outright waivers. And so Jonathan Diaz, not to, you know, Jonathan Diaz contributed to the major league level and is a very good guy. But, you know, like Jonathan Diaz, you know, there's a race to figure out, oh, did he clear waivers? And, you know, is he going to remain with the Paw Sox as their utility infielder? Um, so there, there is a, uh, there's a considerable pressure uh, to just, I get to just, Deal with all of the minutiae related to the job in a world, and there is a constancy of immediate. There is a constancy of the need for immediacy um, because now it's no longer the case that we're that people are conditioned to wait for the news the next day at a certain time when they're having their coffee uh, because of Twitter and because of the electronic nature of things. Everything is immediate, so. But from that standpoint, every time you encounter a piece of news, you're immediately thrust into the position of having to deal with it. Right. And so that is uh, that runs counter to the opportunity to just sit down and have a meaningful reflection on ideas, which is why thing, which is why sites like Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus 
where people are dedicated so much more to the macro than the micro right. uh, are so indispensable in kind of moving conversations forward. Although we're not immune to the demands of uh, traffic, et cetera, sure. either. Because you know that if we put up, uh, if we have a post about, you know, well, if we, you put Derek Jeter in the title, or you know, maybe now it's Miguel Cabrera and Mike Trout's name in the title, that's going to be a post at which people are looking, right? So that, right. I mean, that's also a consideration. For us. Yeah, unquestionably, right. You want you want to write about things uh, that people care about. Yeah. You know, so that, and so I guess you know, within that, there is then the question of having enough, you know, enough time to have the requisite intellectual freedom. And again, like I don't, you know, I this is not a cons- this is not my concern. This is so many writers' concerns, right? Um, because there are. Especially, I, you know, I, I have never covered the beat, a beat in, in another city, so my exposure is here. But, oh, my God, there are so many smart people who cover the Red Sox and who have so many interesting ideas and who struggle on a day-to-day basis with being able to bring those ideas to fruition in a fashion that they, in a fashion that they find satisfying and sleeping. Yeah. So this is the last thing I ask you. Uh, I've already surreptitiously brought us uh, eight minutes over what I said. Oh, uh, that was as I suggested. Brilliant. Well done. <laughs> the um, in terms of acclimating yourself to this market, both I guess you, you would have born with a suit as a college student first. I guess. Well, what do you mean in terms of exposure to the coverage or exposure? What do you mean by exposure? I guess to the first market? of all, uh, recognizing you come from the DC area, right? Which. Um, there was no baseball team right, where I was there, from, right? right? And, like and, I was going up to Baltimore when I wanted to see baseball games, right? And, and the, there's a, there are certainly sports fans in that area, and um, they have their own way of going about the, their games. I assume that when you came up here uh, to go to college, you you were you were at closer hand to what the Boston market is like, and the sort of fact it's like you're not you don't really have to be a, a baseball fan to be a Red Sox fan, for right? Example. It's just sort of like it's sort of like how uh, how Italians are Catholic. They're not really participating in the in the daily liturgy, but okay. it's in the background. Right, they're, they're all Catholic. Well, exposure to the Red Sox. I, I, you know, to be to be very fair and very candid, uh, when I came up as an Orioles fan in '93, yeah. so this was before uh, they went into the crapper for a number of years. Um, I was virulently anti-Red Sox, uh, and in <laughs> fact, um, and in fact, all of my discretionary income, mo- much of it anyway, uh, that was not spent on uh, entertainment. Uh, was uh, <laughs> on uh, well anyway yeah, uh, was uh, was dedicated to buying uh, buying tickets in the bleachers at Fenway Park and typically rooting very vociferously against the Red yeah. Sox, um, you know, to like exploring the line between what would uh, what would push people what would push people's buttons to the point of wanting to punch me versus uh, versus actually punching me yeah. and not you want you were trying to, to to inspect that line yes. more closely yes and yeah. not get my face punched in yeah um, so I, I managed your to do that your face is mostly intact at the moment nah. I say. yeah, yeah. Th- we can we can agree to disagree but um, yeah so my exposure so yes I became uh, fascinated certainly by the intensity passion of the environment uh, the nature of the specificity of the exploration of baseball um, and you know certainly like you know that that hit a nerve that touched a nerve with me yeah. certainly um, and that but honestly like it was probably you know it was it was probably not just it was the exposure to that passionate environment and occurring simultaneously with the kind of flourishing of ideas in terms of how 
baseball was being covered on ESPN, the Rob Nyers of the world, right? You know, who were kind of like offering this little, like you know, this opening of a window, right? Like I had been given Bill James books when I was like a wee laddie growing up, but you were uh, Scottish. That's what you're yeah, trying to say, <laughs> precisely. Um, a Scottish you, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, but you know, and had like I would I would read through them, but not really kind of understand. Oh, this is a different worldview, right. and so like getting reintroduced to a lot of Bill's notions through Rob, Rob's notions uh, at a time when I was also dealing with academia and the idea of oh, let's look at things from these twelve different perspectives simultaneously. Right. Uh, that was you know, and and seeing that there was this place to do so passionately about the Red Sox was was interesting, yeah. and you know. Probably and perhaps transformative, even though I had, uh, even though it took like another seven years or so before I ever wrote my first sports article. You uh, you worked for the Manchester Union Leader, I think. I did. What, did you live in Manchester? No, oh. I uh, I lived in Cambridge in Somerville, and uh, I uh, and I never set foot in the in the offices of the New Hampshire first Manchester and then New Hampshire Union Leader. Oh, it's called right. Um, I also I wrote I wrote for several years for the Boston Metro, which is a free daily that's given out around the city. Yeah, and for the and for the Union leader without ever having set foot there uh, and and then my freelance domain opened up at various times at that time I was working actually in academic administration as well at Harvard um, but freelancing as a kind of as, as a regular contributor to the union leader oh, oh, and nice. to the metro that's nice what am I? hey well listen I'm gonna let you go let's uh, we'll shake hands okay this is, there's no this is radio, a radio handshake this is a radio handshake if only there was like you know if only you had a buzzer or something yeah. so the people would know that it actually it's uh, Alex Spear um uh, WEI's uh, beat reporter, one of them for the Boston Red Sox. One of them, uh, yes. Scottish Jew. <laughs> <laughs> I discover something new every day about yourself. Uh, and uh, I'm Carson Stuley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. It's hot now.